Israeli lawmakers have voted to hold an early national election that's set to take place on November the 1st. This vote in Parliament means yet another election for Israelis. Politicians readying for their fifth campaign in under four years. Either six elections or, once again, a very, let's say, unregular government, unstable government for sure, as the last two were, uh, which means we are still in a deep a political crisis. Hello and welcome to another episode of Everyday Voices. I'm Andrew Hirsch and I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Azoli Masri. One week from today, Israelis will head to the polls for the fifth time in under four years. It is somehow both astonishing and unsurprising that we are here again. But, you know, although the last four elections failed to produce a stable governing coalition, the outcome of this one will have vast consequences for the region regardless of the outcome. To understand the key developments taking place right now, the historical context, and what our partners at Darkana are doing on the ground to promote democracy, we've got a couple of great guests for you today. First, we'll be speaking with Michael Koplow, the Chief Policy Officer at Israel Policy Forum. And then we'll hear from Danielle Leumi, a campaigner at Darkenu, who's going to talk about the new Democrater app and how that is increasing voter turnout across Israel and reaching millions of citizens. So without further ado, let's bring Michael onto the show. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Uh, my pleasure. And, and I'm good. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Uh, to jump right in. Uh, you know, we're looking at the fifth election in Israel in under four years. So first of all, how did we get to this point? So it's, uh, you know, it's funny to think back to April 2019, which was the first election, um, because that election, I think many people, myself included, were expecting a a pretty easy victory for, uh, at the time, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, you know, and he came out of that election with what looked like a right-wing coalition of, of 66 seats and uh, Avigdor Lieberman and uh, and Lieberman's fight with the Haredim fouled that up. And ever since, we're, you know, in this Groundhog Day situation where uh, election after election after election, and it's the same deadlock, it's the same personalities, it's the, it's the same set of issues. You know, we, we can go through we can go through all four of them, but uh, I think for the sake of brevity, uh, it's probably sufficient to say that um, Netanyahu himself is a, a controversial figure, given his indictments and, and his trial, and the fact that he had been prime minister for so long. And the way we got to where we are is that there are now enough people in the former Netanyahu camp, the, the right wing camp, who remain right wing, but are no longer willing to sit with Netanyahu. And that situation has not resolved itself. And I don't think it's going to resolve itself while Netanyahu is on the scene. And so we're looking at, as you pointed out, the fifth election in under three years. And I think there's a good chance that this is not going to be the last one of this cycle. Thanks for that. So, you know, thinking about this, this cycle that we've been in, what makes this one that we're about to see in November 1st different from, from the previous three? The biggest way that this one is different is that Yair Lapid is prime minister. As we now all know too well from the previous four elections, when you have a deadlock, the person who is prime minister at the time remains prime minister through the next election. And if a government can't be formed, keeps on going. And the first the first four elections, uh, the person who benefited from this was Benjamin Netanyahu as the sitting prime minister. And 
I think in some ways that made Netanyahu unwilling to make deals that perhaps he would have made had he not been prime minister because he just got to continue if nothing happened. This time around, we have that dynamic with Lapid. Now, after the fourth election, we had this really strange and unique and unique in the annals of Israeli history situation where Lapid, despite being the head of Yesh Atid, the largest party in the anti-Nisnyahu bloc, he approached Naftali Bennett, who only had seven seats to Lapid 17, and said to him, if you come with me, I will let you be prime minister first. Um, you know, we've never had an Israeli prime minister who had so few seats. Um, and Lapid was willing to do that because that was the key to dislodging Netanyahu from the prime minister's office. This time around, Lapid is not going to be interested in making any deal of that sort, because if there's a deadlock, he remains prime minister. And so <clears throat> I think that that is that's number one. The second thing uh, that is different that I think is also important is that you have four Arab parties that have been running for Knesset. And in the first four cycles, twice uh, they ran um, as, as one, one group. Um, and so you had four parties running together uh, as one. And twice they were split up into two groups um, in different iterations. Uh, you know, uh, but you, you had the four Arab parties either running as one or running as two. This time, uh, you have them running as three different groups. You have Ra'am running on its own, you have Balad running on its own, and you have Khadash Ta'al. And that runs the risk of certainly Balad and Ra'am falling below the threshold, but I think it possibly runs the risk of Khadash Ta'al below the threshold as well. Um, and that means that we may be looking at a scenario in which you have no Arab parties in the Knesset, which will be a huge setback for Arab citizens of Israel, uh, especially coming after what we saw following the fourth election, where Ram became the first independent Arab party to ever join an Israeli coalition. And, you know, that resulted in all sorts of talk about how the situation was going to change for Israeli Arabs, both in terms of their place in society and their involvement in politics. If we have a situation where Arab parties are shut out of the Knesset because they're not making the 3.25% threshold, then we're going to see a real rollback in terms of progress that was made and, and progress that could be made in the future, not to mention the impact it will have on Lapid and his ability to form a government, because if uh, any of the Arab parties, but particularly if Ram and Khadash Tal fall below the threshold, then I think uh, Bibi Netanyahu is pretty clearly going to get to 61 seats or more. Uh, so I think those, you know, there there are a few other elements that are different, but I think those are the two that really bear the most watching. Great. Uh, nice uh, to hear that. Uh, now, uh, my uh, question to you is, where does uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, rank in this uh, election? Yes. And also, I wanted also maybe in the same question, ask about uh, the way of the uh, Israeli settlers uh, in the West Bank on this election. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict ranks very low at the moment for Israeli voters. Uh, you hear very few politicians talking about it in the sense of it being uh, a diplomatic problem or a political problem that has to be solved through negotiations, as opposed to people who just talk about it as a security issue. 
Uh, it does not rank high on the list of priorities for Israeli voters. We see most of the parties running for Knesset entirely ignore the issue, have no real position on it or, or try to evade it. Uh, we have a, a really bizarre situation within Hamachane uh, Hamamlachti or the National Unity Party in English, where um, you have part of that party that supports annexation of Area C. You have uh, part of that party, um, particularly uh, the element led by Gadi Eisenkot that's talking about separation and, and two states. So even within a single party, we see schizophrenia on this issue. Um, it's just not what Israeli voters care about. Um, you know, they are looking at economic issues and inflation. They're looking at issues of religion and state. Um, they are looking at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in terms of security, uh, especially now that there is more violence taking place in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. And, yes. um, and you know, shooting shoot, con conflict is up and, and shootings of Palestinians by IDF soldiers is up, um, you know, on any metric. Uh, we're seeing more violence than we have in over a decade. And so to the extent that people are focused on it, they're focused on this this notion of restoring security. But very few people are focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as an issue that needs to be solved that's critical to Israel's security, critical to the well-being of Jews and Palestinians. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it's something that uh, I think at some point will come back around, but we haven't seen it really across these five uh, these five elections. And, um, you know, I'm, so from I'm one to 10, Michael, what would you say Israel-Palestine conflict ranks from one to 10? From one to 10, yeah. uh, with one being the lowest and 10 being the highest? Yes. I'd say it's at a two. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> really maybe, low. Maybe at a, maybe at a three. Um, I mean, listen, the, the parties yeah. the parties that we'd expect to be talking about it, uh, you yeah. know, which would be which would be labor and merits, they're yeah. not talking about it that much either. You hear more of it from merits than you do from labor, but it's not as if Merav Mikhaili is out there, you know, campaigning on two states. She's campaigning on uh, public transportation on Shabbat, and she's campaigning on economic issues. And um, you know, listen, labor labor is a party whose whose foundation, right? Labor Avodah's foundation is in socioeconomic issues. Um, but but parties that in the past we would expect to talk about these issues really really are not. Um, and, uh, you know, even though after the speech in the United Nations and saying he's uh, two states and Netanyahu using it, it still did not muster enough uh, uh, attention uh, around this issue. Not really. Gota is not interested. I mean, but, but what, what is the alternative? I mean, 55 years of military occupation. I mean, for us Palestinians, the three generations, my uncle, my grandfather, Salman, he passed away. My father, Azat, he passed away. I'm 52, okay? 55 years of Israeli military occupation. I mean, when I see the pictures coming out of the West Bank, and I imagine myself 18 years old doing the same thing, you know, throwing stones at the Israeli soldiers. What's the alternative? I don't see any alternative. <laughs> we keep on putting it on the shelf. It's just for us Palestinians, it's painful, it's agonizing. I mean, for the Israelis, they go on with their business in Tel Aviv and they have the Israeli army burning us down in the West Bank. <clears throat> but the Israelis need to come with an, an alternative because Israel have the upper hand in this. They could say, okay, everything failed, that's what we're gonna do, okay? <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Absolutely, and and you know, certainly I, I see no alternative, no alternative that will actually resolve this in a peaceful and fair way. Now, there are alternatives out there. You know, we we see 
For instance, the Religious Zionism Party, which is probably going to be the third largest party in the Knesset, led by Betzalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, um, you know, Ben-Gvir being uh, a very prominent uh, neo-Kahanist. We see the way that Ben-Gvir talks about this, which is some combination of apartheid and transfer for not only Palestinians in the West Bank, but for Israeli Arabs. Now, that's something that uh, I, I hope we never see, but can I sit here and say that that will never come to fruition? I can't say that, particularly given the way trends are going in Israel. Um, I don't think that you know we're going to see that anytime soon. But it's the it's it's not a it's not a scenario that has a non-zero possibility. So there certainly are other alternatives that could happen. But if we're talking about alternatives that will actually deal with the conflict in a way that is fair to both sides and that recognizes the national aspirations of both Israelis and Palestinians and leaves them both with the security and safety and prosperity they deserve, there's no other game in town but two states. Um, and you know, I, I'm, I'm with you all the way. The more that Israeli voters ignore this uh, or assume that it's going to go away or assume that it's just going to resolve itself, I think uh, the deeper hole they will be in to have to climb out of down the road. Well, I agree with you totally. I mean, we're on the same page, Michael. Thank you for your analysis. Well, Michael, you mentioned uh, Smotrich and, and Ben Gavir. I want to I want to focus on them for a minute here. So you you said earlier in the show that a lot of people on the right are no longer willing to sit with Netanyahu. You mentioned also that if the Arab parties fail to meet, meet the threshold, Netanyahu will still have a pretty solid path to 61 seats. And that's largely due to the fact that these far right parties that were not really involved in the Knesset, you know, several years ago are now gaining prominence. And we look back in the 80s, you know, Kahan's party was was banished from running for for the Knesset. Um, so now you mention these guys as kind of like neo kahanism uh, being their their philosophy. How did they rise to prominence, get to the point where they might be able to sit in a coalition? I think there are a number of things that are driving this. Um, the first is that Israel has taken a, a more nationalist rightward turn. That's not unique to Israel. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in uh, in Potomac, Maryland, and in the United States, we've, we've certainly seen this. Uh, and, you know, we've seen it in countries in Europe. You, know, you look you look at uh, European elections. This is this is not isolated to Israel by any means. Um, I think one of the mistakes that people often make is to is to look at Israel as somehow unique or distinctive. Israel is very much fit, fits into worldwide trends in lots of ways. Um, and so it's not surprising, but it's happening in Israel, too. And if you have a right wing nationalist sentiment in Israel, it's going to gravitate toward parties like religious Zionism that are ultra nationalist, that are that are, you know, borderline authoritarian, um, uh, that certainly espouse bigotry. And, you know, in Israel's case, are, are neo Kahanist. Um, and when I say neo Kahanist, I mean, uh, I mean, espousing a philosophy that really looks like Jewish supremacy. Um, so I think, you know, that's number one. Uh, number two, you've had this fusion over the past decade between, um, <clears throat> settler nationalism and, uh, and right-wing ideological nationalism not related to territory. Um, we see it happening in all sorts of communities. We see that, uh, voters in the West Bank who used to be concerned first and foremost with the settlement project are now gravitating toward more right-wing nationalist authoritarian views, irrespective of, of what it means for settlements. We see it among the ultra-Orthodox community. 
Um, ben Gvir and Smotrich are probably picking up one or two seats in the polls from ultra-Orthodox voters who in the past would have voted for ultra-Orthodox parties such as Shas or UTJ. Um, and so uh, we also saw uh, about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, uh, the first creation of an ultra-Orthodox illegal outpost, something that really would have been unimaginable five years ago, 10 years ago, the notion that, uh, that Haredim, ultra-Orthodox Jews, would care about the settlement project as an ideological project. And now we see uh, actually that uh, an illegal outpost has been established um, by ultra-Orthodox. And I think that that trend is only going to grow. So, you know, we're seeing that too. And third, I think that um, I think that Ben Gvir in particular is benefiting in some ways from uh, a similar phenomenon that Donald Trump benefited from here in the United States, which is he is seen as iconoclastic. He's seen in some ways as standing up against the establishment. Even if you don't agree with his political views, I think a lot of people look at him and say, oh, you know, this is somebody who I'm going to vote for sort of as a, as a protest vote to, to demonstrate that, um, you know, that, that, that I want to that I want to tear down the establishment and and that, uh, you know, elites need to be need to be taught a taught a lesson or, or brought back down to size. I think that Ben Veer very effectively positions himself um, in this way. And so I think that's part of it, too. Uh, we actually saw something similar in Israel in 2019 before the first election, where a character who uh, some people may not remember, but a character named Moshe Feiglin, uh, who was a longtime Likud politician, he formed his own party called Zahut, which had all sorts of crazy policy combinations. You know, Zahut was in favor of... Uh, Identity, Zahut, huh? Zahut. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, <laughs> Zahut was in, was in favor of... Full West Bank annexation uh, and marijuana legalization and uh, the construction of, of the Third Temple, the Third Beit Hamikdash on the Temple Mount. Um, so it, it had these kind of extreme territorial and religious views that married with libertarianism. And you had all these people, including the younger voters in Tel Aviv, who were telling posters, "Oh, I'm pollsters. Oh, I'm going to go vote for Moshe Feiglin." Um, you know, he's 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 anti-establishment. Now, he was at seven or eight seats in the polls before that first election. He ended up not making the threshold. There's no chance that religious Zionism is going to miss the threshold. I am hopeful that the 14 seats that they're getting in the polls now, um, you know, turns out to be a, a massive overstatement of their actual support. Um, but I, I do think that we are seeing some of this same trend where, People look at Ben Gvir and they're voting for him as a personality, not necessarily because of his uh, political or ideological views. Okay, great. So I'm going to take it from there. And for your prediction for uh, Ben Gvir, and we know that there is uh, there are 120 seats in the Knesset. Michael, what is your uh, what are your predictions uh, for the outcome of this election? Who's going to get more? Uh, who's going to have more chances of forming a government in Israel? I think that we're probably headed to another deadlock. Uh, I, I don't think that Netanyahu is going to get to 61. I think he, I think he's probably going to fall a bit short. Um, but I also don't think that Lapid uh, is going to get there is going to get there either. I think that um, you know there are questions not only about whether Khadash Ta'al will sit in a coalition or even support it from the outside. There are questions about whether other people in in the Lapid coalition would agree. Uh, to accept the support of Khadash Tal. I think that Ram is also up in the air, um, given the fact that many of Ram's voters um, are disillusioned about uh, about them having joined the coalition and uh, the the benefits that they perceive to, to not have gotten from joining. So 
I think that Netanyahu actually has an easier path to 61 than Lapid does, but uh, but I don't think that either of them are going to get there. I think that I think that the likeliest scenario is another deadlock and, and going to another election. Yeah, thank you very much. Andrew. We appreciate that, Michael, and we we appreciate all your time and insight today. Before we let you go, we have one more question. Uh, we know the you know from the viewers' perspective, the Israeli election is much different than than the American one. Um, so, for our listeners, how do you suggest people you know consume news and updates, knowing that you know the election night itself does not decide a whole lot? Yeah. So um, certainly, the election is not over on November first when the voting takes place. You know, you have this effectively month-long period where uh, parties go and they make their recommendations to President Bougie Herzog about who should form a government, and you have coalition negotiations and all sorts of maneuvering. Um, so it's important, you know, not to think of November 1st as, as decisive. It's really important to keep on following for two, three, four weeks afterwards. The entire month of November really is going to be uh, Israeli, Israeli election season. Um, there's no better way uh, of following it than consuming the news from Israel. You know, we're uh, we're fortunate to live in a time where um, whether you read your news in Hebrew or you read your news in English, you can uh, read many Israeli newspapers in whatever language you want online uh, in real time and, you know, follow journalists on social media. Uh, I will take this opportunity to plug Israel Policy Forum's 120 project, uh, where we uh, constantly update it with not only written analysis on the elections, but we have... Uh, we have polls, we have breakdowns of all the parties, uh, we have podcasts, so uh, that's a pretty good resource too. Um, but there's there's no, there, there really is no <laughs> for following it firsthand yourself. Um, and so however however you'd like to do that, whether whether it's via Twitter, Twitter Facebook, or uh, reading old-fashioned newspapers, um, you know, uh, that's, that's the best way to do it. Well, thank you so much for that, Michael. I can confirm the 120 Project is excellent. It's a great way to follow the news. Uh, we appreciate you having on the episode here today. We'll include resources from Israel Policy Forum, including the 120 Project in the show notes for this episode. And uh, we hope to connect again soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank you. Yeah, after the conversation with Michael, I went back to the 120 Project webpage on the IPF website and really enjoyed using their coalition builder tool, which allows you to cobble together different parties to try to reach 61 seats in the Knesset. Uh, not just a entertaining tool for political junkies out there, but as the votes trickle in on November 1st and 2nd and we get a sense of how many seats the different parties will actually have, it'll be a great way to create some different hypotheticals and figure out if there is a path to 61 for any one party. So thank you again to Michael for joining us today. Shifting gears now, we're going to bring Danielle Leomi onto the show to discuss what our partners at Darkano are doing to promote Israeli democracy. Well, Danielle, hello. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us today. How you doing? Great. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Ez. Hi. So to kick things off, you know, we're a week out now from the next Israeli election, the fifth one in a little under four years. Uh, what is Darkenu's get out the vote strategy during this cycle? So I'll start with a brief overview. This is the fifth round of election in three and a half years, and the public is tired and frustrated. Polls conducted show that the vast majority of the non-extremists are in despair and believe that the upcoming election may result in what they view as the most extremist government seen in Israel, while many others won't go out to vote. Um, I think their keenest power has been proved time and time in previous rounds of election is to motivate the general public all over Israel to go out and vote. 
So we basically have two main campaign goals. One would be to strengthen the non-extremists to go out and vote by motivating and emphasizing the importance of taking part in the democratic process. The second part would be to encourage as many people as possible all over Israel to go out and vote using our app, the Democrator app. Yes. As a movement, we understand that we must ensure that many people as possible will exercise their civil right and duty on November 1st. Yes. So I don't know if you've seen our campaign online, but it consists of quotes of Knesset members from across the political rainbow, addressing some of the core issues of their Kano and the main issues that are in the center of these elections. Um, democracy, the threat to the legal system, minority rights, LGBT rights, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Each topic is addressed through two quotes from different MKs with the slogan, Tivchiru, which means in Hebrew, both vote and choose. We have graphics and videos that are widely promoted on social media and news channels and across the net. We have done activities all over bridges and highways throughout the country calling to choose vote. We relaunched our app, the Democrator app, an app that calls people to mark friends and family members that might not go out to vote and encourage them to vote. This way we will make sure no one stays at home on November 1st. A few important notes would be, maybe it's needless to say, we don't encourage to vote for a particular party or block, and we do not encourage not to vote for any particular party or block. We emphasize on the core values and issues that are on the base of the elections. We focus on the what and not on the who. We believe that voter turnout should be increased in order to strengthen the Israeli democracy. I think we took upon ourselves a difficult mission to make sure that exhaustion and the disbelief and the ability to influence that these strong emotional states will not translate into low turnout. And Danila, what makes Darkeno's approach unique? As that's a great question. I think the uniqueness of our movement is that before each round of election, we have kind of a significant strategic thinking on the type of the campaign that will motivate people to actually leave their houses and go out to vote. We ad adapt that tactic each time and we have the ability to make changes in short time to implement them underground. I think this is what makes Darkeno so unique and effective. In previous rounds of elections, the spokesperson for the Likud party said that Durkenu added to what he called the block of change two mandates that were not in plan. I believe that from our part at least, we have always worked to ensure that all citizens exercise their right and duty to go out and vote. We are not running a campaign against anyone or in favor of anyone. But we are calling on the public to shake off indifferences, to remember how important the elections are for our life here, to our future here, to our home and go out to vote. In my opinion, the higher the, vote, the voter turnout, the stronger our democracy will be. And with the goal of forming a stable government for four years that will be moderate, inclusive, and that will represent all the Israeli public in all its colors. This is not obvious because politics in Israel is very polarized and so is the public. There is a sense of struggle and even hatred between parts within the Israeli society and the voices of extremists are heard loud. They also receive extensive media coverage in Israel. In my opinion, this is dangerous for Israel, and this is why we work not only during election time, but throughout the whole year for sounding and echoing of the moderate voices. And we raise issue, the issues that are essential to Israeli society. 
also in our campaign, in our field department, policy and advocacy department on the Democrat TV, which is the independent media channel that we established back in 2020. Yeah, those sounds uh, very effective methods. Thank you for sharing. So, Daniel, I think our audience is is largely familiar with the way that people campaign from the grassroots level in the United States. Um, Israel, of course, is a very different country uh, than the U.S. for for many reasons. What are the unique challenges and opportunities associated with campaigning in Israel? Okay, so I think I'm going to start with the challenges. Due to the fact this is the fifth election in three years and also with the holiday season at the time that the public is already tired and worn out so the holiday period in israel is a sleepy period politically many people are abroad it's usually time spent with family and friends the result is in the end of the day that between the elections and the holidays you have 10 12 days to which almost all resources of the parties are directed to for our movement however significant it might be, it is challenging to compete in such limited time with the party's resources. That in mind, we focus on our campaign with strong colors, unique graphics that will stand out. We place an emphasis on a sharp, short and memorable message combined with different visibility that will make the public stop and serve as a hook for our campaign to encourage voting. Another issue that we have is the limitation of the law. It is critical for us to meet all the requirements of the law. And despite that, in this election as well as in every election, the Likud party petitioned the Central Election Committee against Erkano and against Democrat TV, claiming that we are violating the law. Issuing a petition, in practical terms, Andrew, is shutting down Erkano and Democrat TV. So with a campaign, we are conducting a difficult legal battle, but we are sure that we will meet all the requirements and, as its previous times, end in our victory. Last but not least, we have, in terms of opportunities, over 400,000 supporters. The period of the election is a great time to connect with the supporters, share our activities, empower the cycle of support for our movement. The fact that this is the fifth time clouds the feeling of joy and pride to take part in the democratic celebration in Israel. But we, we remind ourselves, and most importantly, the public, how critical it is. Well, Daniela, thank you very much. This was very informative for us here in the States. Uh, you know, Israel is going this uh, election for the fifth time. And uh, we wish better for Israel and the Israelis. And hopefully uh, the outcome will be good for everybody. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Az. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much, Danielle. And for our listeners who want to learn more about Darkenu, the campaign, and Democrat TV, we've included some resources in the show notes for this episode. So check it out. Thank you again to Danielle and to Michael Coppola for joining us on this month's episode. If you enjoyed the program, please be sure to subscribe and rate it on your podcast platform of choice. And we'll see you next time.